Welcome to the Tensor Podcast, where we dive into different worlds to help us quench our thirst for everyday curiosities. Join our guests as we explore their journey and learn from the experiences as I ask the questions so you don't have to. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tensor Podcast. My name is Dev, and welcome back to another exciting episode. So today's guest is an archaeologist from Ireland, and her name is Amy O'Keefe. She's a change maker in her field, as well as she's fighting for rights for women all across history. So please, please help me welcome Amy O'Keefe. Amy, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor to talk to you today. Awesome. Uh, I hope I gave you a proper introduction. If I did, if I did say anything wrong, feel free to correct me. <laughs> oh no, I'm still blushing. What a no. what a wonderful introduction. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So, are you are you in Ireland right now? I am indeed. Yes, I, I'm in Ireland. Um, actually, I'm going into college tomorrow to do a bit more research because still tipping away. Always, always on the grind. Always, always <laughs> on the grind. Yes, always on the grind. Awesome. So archaeology and ancient history. So tell me how how a young girl from Ireland, you know, broke broke the glass ceiling, you know, cleared all her boundaries and went into this exciting field. Well, I think a certain television show by the name of Stargate SG1 has an awful lot to answer for. Whenever <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. people say, oh, you're an archaeologist, they always assume Indiana Jones. And I always tell them, no, 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 he's he's a terrible archaeologist. <laughs> um, the, so the character of uh, Daniel Jackson in Stargate SG1, you know, was uh, an archaeologist. He was part of this sort of militaristic scientific team that was going off world to explore different places. And I found that concept of like engaging in culture and having that kind of knowledge of like cultures and history and artifacts so fascinating and he also spoke very fast which I myself do so I was like <laughs> oh yeah jamming with this guy so yeah. yeah oh I absolutely loved it and you know my parents always had quite an interest um in history and my dad in particular loved like ancient Egypt and there was always he he was a bit of a painter as well as he had like a lovely sort of painting of Amun-Ra and like statues of Bastet all around the house and all these encyclopedias wow. of, of history and all these fascinating things and we'd always be watching documentaries and whenever we had the money to go up to Dublin from my hometown like we would always go up and we'd go into the museums and look at things you know which was a big treat of course yeah um as soon as I expressed an interest you know they were like we have to take you to all these places. Yeah, for sure. No, that's great. Like how you're, you're, I guess, you know, in a way you could say that you, it was lucky that your surroundings helped mold your interest and helped mold your passion, right? At the end of the day. Wow, that's that's great. So, so yes. So your parents were also very supportive of, of, of this field. So how, how did you get into like, what was your steps? What steps did you take to get into, you know, university or college? How did it start? So where I grew up is in Ireland, it's considered an area called a desh area or like a disadvantaged area. So I went to a school that specifically was on this list of disadvantaged. So poor economic, socioeconomic background, not the greatest education, maybe. Yeah. But um, for that reason, then there's systems put in place to help people from those schools get places in college courses because the way we do it here is based on merit as in like you take your leaving certificate examinations and you get points assigned to each grade so <clears throat> um people who apply for this higher education access route get these points added to their own leaving cert points and it pretty much guarantees them a, a good spot in college and then there's also financial aid from the government as well um, for people like myself who didn't have a lot of like money to go and do this insanely expensive thing. So yeah. I was set up and my mother, God bless her, she's an absolute wizard. She knows all of the different funds that are available. What's the requirements? How do we do this? What to apply for, you know? And yeah. <laughs> I always remember that uh, I had a guidance counselor in my secondary school that just, she took against me and she told me one day that I would never go to college and I would never get a grant to go to college. Wow. 
and my mother I think it was like a parent teacher meeting like that week she went down there and she went into the hall and she yelled at this woman she was like how dare you tell this to my child but yeah no she had all of these resources gathered up and ready to go and she was like right we're going to get you into Trinity College because that's where you want to go and I was like yes I do yeah probably up to the open days and everything because my dad was working at the time my mum wasn't so she would always bring me to the colleges and I did my leaving cert did not so great because I was quite unwell at the time and uh, I was devastated when I got my results crap but then like a week later it's barbaric they make you wait a week to find out if you go to college a week later at half six in the morning I logged on online and there it was, my offer to go and study archaeology Amazing. college. Oh, I was over the moon. It was, yeah. I, I, I told my parents, I felt like I was, I was six years old again on Christmas morning and Santa had just been. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Did, you, did yeah. you take your acceptance letter and give it to your guidance counselor being like, look, I defied the odds. You told me I couldn't make so, it. I did. Sort of, because my dad actually worked in that school as a caretaker. He was a caretaker slash cleaner for 25 years. So. He worked in that school with that woman and the morning of the college application uh, results, she was walking down the corridor and she's like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear, you know, like, oh, did Amy not get what she wanted? Did she not get an offer? Wow. Dad was like, oh no, she got her first place offer. She's going to Trinity College. <laughs> Oh, wow. So it was very, very cathartic I for know. him. Yeah, no, was, no, no. He was delighted. Uh, I was I'm, delighted. We were all over the moon. I bet he was proud. Moon, yeah. I bet he was proud. Wow, that's 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 a great story. Like you <laughs> define the odds, like you know, shutting the haters up and just getting into college. Wow. So yeah. now now you now I'm 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 assuming that it was it was a four year program around the four year program. Yes. Perfect. Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah. And, it, was, and, it was go ahead, go ahead. Uh, sorry, yeah. Uh, it was actually uh, two subject moderation moderatorship. They don't do it anymore, but it was basically doing two bachelors at the same time. Oh wow! It was chaos. Yeah, <laughs> it was absolute wow. chaos. <laughs> One bachelor degree for me got me floored. Two, I couldn't even imagine at the same time. <laughs> Good lord! Wow! Yeah, it was it was nutty. Wow! So during your do you do you guys did you guys go on expeditions when you were studying, or that only came after? Um, so in Trinity College at the time, they've slightly changed the program now. There wasn't any practical field work. So during the summer months, you were encouraged to go to field schools. And because the focus was on Mediterranean archaeology, like Greek and Roman, you'd be kind of told, oh, there's a study tour over in Athens or there's a, an archaeological survey or a dig over in, in Italy or something. And you'd be encouraged to go. But that costs money, of course. And so, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't sponsor it. They would just tell you that it is there, right? They would tell you of about it. And sometimes there were like bursaries and travel grants and yeah. stuff, um, which wasn't always feasible or possible. But I was lucky enough that, you know, I was getting like a monthly grant to go to college for like, you know, accommodation and food and all this. But my parents very kindly um, just let me live in let me live at home with them. I would travel up on the train, which was quite expensive at the time. And, you know, they would feed me as well. You know, they supported me through this. They were like, this is so expensive. So I had a little bit saved up and I said, hey, I'm thinking of going to Greece. What do you think? And they were like, you have to go. <laughs> you just, you must. Yeah. So yeah. those were the only practical options I had at the time in college because we weren't going to do field work in college. Yeah, no, that's the best. Like, you know, you're nervous and you're like, mom dad um i'm thinking about and they completely 360 and they're just like yeah go you have to go yeah. there's no question about it no oh yeah that's amazing yeah, they, they've always been great for that yeah, yeah no no uh, people have no idea what uh, the amount of support you get from supportive parents not just like physical but mental support you know throughout mm -hmm. your life it it goes a long way. Like even my parents are very supportive of me of whatever I do. And, you know, whenever you're doing a thing, you feel good. You're like, look, like I'm, I'm doing this and, you know, my parents love it too. It's amazing. So yeah, like kudos yeah. to your parents for being supportive of, oh, your, of your journey. So now you've graduated, right? You have that degree in your hand. You know, you're proud. You're, you're, you're holding your degree. You know, you have your, you're flinging your graduation cap and everything. So what was the first job you landed and and how how did what what was it like what 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 did you do at the place So 
I very nearly did not make it even to graduation because I started to become so, so sick mm-hmm. in my last year of my undergraduate. But I, made, I did all of my exams. I handed everything on time. I finished my dissertation and I broke up with a horrible boyfriend. So things were all coming up, Amy. It was all, it was all going well, but I just, I felt so unwell. Something wasn't right, you know, and I was in college one day and I went up in the lift, got out of the lift and collapsed. Oh. And I was like, oh dear, this isn't right. So every time I would go to the doctor about this being like, hey, I have these horrible pains, please help. They'd be like, but how is your asthma? Oh, wow. Very frustrating. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so eventually I kind of like hassled them enough to get the ball rolling and like, I think I moved over to Scotland for a little while with some friends and, you know, I, two of us are singers. So we were like singing for money, which is great. We yeah, paid yeah. our rent and then yeah. for like four people uh, by just busking and singing <laughs> wow. in clubs. But yeah, uh, when I came home, I was like, right, I'm going to the doctor about this. I've had enough. And it took months to just get them to to listen and to be like, okay, let's take this seriously. And what happened was like, I was eventually at the end of the road diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, which is a chronic or persistent pain condition, which is fatigue, the whole lot, lack of concentration, everything. So I was like, oh, this makes sense about why I was struggling so much in my final year. So, yeah, you have to rule everything else out first with that. So that all happened, took took ages. I started to feel a little better about it. I was like, okay, well, I know what it is. I can manage a bit better. Now I need to go get a job because I'm out of college. I need to go get a job. I'm not going back to college. That's not for me. I can't, I couldn't possibly. I did in the end, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, We'll put (laughs) a pin on that. We'll get, we'll get to it. We'll we'll get back to that. (laughs) My first job then, I applied to a load of places because a close friend of mine who was also doing archaeology, she, for luck, fell in with, a bunch of people and they were like oh yeah no you you can get a job digging here like there's a lot of commercial archaeology in Ireland and I was like great okay so she told me about that and gave me a list of companies to apply to and I ended up working in my home county mm-hmm. on a very large site massive huge site like when I now when I know now like what I, what I know now and think back on the size of that sh- that that site I'm astonished at how small the staff was at the start oh wow <laughs> It might have been maybe like six or seven of us on this site that would eventually need at least 30 people on oh, it. So wow. it was immense. So I began there in March and I think I was there for about maybe six months. And I was just, it was hard. It's hard work. Yeah. Archaeology is hard physical labor because once they take away that the topsoil, you have to go in with mattocks, with shovels, with trowels, with wheelbarrows, you know, you got to get in there, you got to get your hands dirty. And that is exhausting. My back was so angry with me. <laughs> yeah, I bet. But yeah, it was exhausting yeah. work. And I think it was um, possibly 700, 800 AD uh, site in Ireland. We had two ring ditches and a lot of metalworking uh, little sites, so little kilns and smelting areas. So mm-hmm. like, interesting enough to to dig with and mm. you know trying to keep on top of all of the registers and context sheets and everything it was it was a lot it was a lot of work and it broke me <laughs> yeah. no no i'm sure so yeah when 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 so when you go to these dig sites so you mentioned like five different instruments that you use right and i i there's only one i could i could tell what it was so so you know just moving on to that question what would if you had if someone told you right now like in the next two hours we're taking you we're shipping you to a dig site what are the top five things you would have in your backpack right now top five things yeah see as am i just limited to tools or can i mention clothing as well yeah any well clothes so no clothing let's let's just say clothing you know you're all you're all ready with it Right. So let's say okay, if you're going so to I have a, my so I have my steel toe cap boots, my my wet yeah. gear. Yeah. Hard hat. OK, yeah, so, so if you're all good for that. If the site had absolutely nothing on it, I would need a mattock, which is basically a pickaxe, but with a sort of a flat spade on it. It's like a hoe, but oh, okay. you know, a bit better. Uh, 
I would have a mattock, a shovel for scooping up stuff up. It's, it's two things. A wheelbarrow. <laughs> to put the stuff in. Exactly. <laughs> a trowel. What's a trowel? Sorry, wheelbarrow oh, was the wheelbarrow was the only thing I knew from back then. So, oh, yeah, okay, got it, got it. Uh, very important, actually, wheelbarrows. Yeah. Uh, a trowel, which is like just a little, it's like a little triangular metal thing with a handle that you can scrape. Oh, okay. With, and it gives it like a really nice clean edge. You can do a lot with a trowel. Um, final thing, what would I bring? Hmm. That's the question. Oh, a measuring tape. Of course. Oh yeah, measuring tape. <laughs> of course, <sure>. measuring tape. <laughs> wow. Of Most course. So things. yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Wow. Mm -hmm. So a wheel. So all of that. Yeah. And so like, because I should have been more clear. I didn't mention. So we didn't even worry about the clothes because you were all. Let's just say that part was all of the way. So those are the five things. Wow. Yes. So now when you let's move on to you know I want to I want to get you know pun intended i want to dig into more of these dig sites you've been on so yeah. i want to know what's the most like interesting thing you ever found and on the con contrary what's the most like i don't want to use the word like disgusting but more like you know when you found it you're like ew what is that kind of like thing <laughs> I don't know if I've ever had necessarily had that reaction because you kind of okay, get over Let's change it to you. Little you, disturbing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a disturbing thing. I can answer that both of those questions with the same thing. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, yeah. So when I was working, I was working through the winter one year in a county called Roscommon, in a very mucky field, and we didn't have. A water pump and our ditches kept getting filled with water so every morning in the freezing cold winter we'd have to bail out our two meter ditches with buckets oh wow, <sighs> wow. and i was the only fool who had waders so that i could actually get into the water the ice cold water first in the morning scoop, scoop up water out. in a bucket and pass it up so miserable horrible sight but in archaeology what happens is sometimes another company will come before you and do some test pits and Many, many years ago, um, another company had come and done a test, but I think it was before the kind of economic crash of Ireland mm -hmm. and they'd discovered a skeleton. And rather than excavating the skeleton properly, they had covered him back over and they said, oh, yeah, there's a skeleton here somewhere. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we're like, OK, so we think this is around where the guy is. So we're going to dig this stuff out. So we had to redig this area that had already been dug and when they backfill or fill in a hole again with stuff that's recently been done, the clay gets really stale and icky and sticky and gooey and really difficult to dig. Oh. So it was very hard going, very messy, dirty work trying to dig this stuff up. And I was there like, oh, I just want to go home. What do I have for lunch today? I think it's a chicken korma. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden, my shovel starts scraping something and you oh. can feel it through the shovel and you can hear it. And it sounds like it's scraping off of timber. It's like, what in the name of God is this? So I said, I said to the person that was there, and I was like, come here for a minute. And I got my trowel out and I started pulling through this and there was plywood. And I was thinking, plywood? That, okay, we might be onto something here. So we eventually uncovered the plywood enough to pull it back. And then there was black plastic, almost like a bin, like a bin bag. Oh, and we were like, wow. oh, this does not look good. Yeah. Because obviously, looks you know, like someone when you're, Put yeah, when you're digging, there. you're like, oh no. Yeah, it's a crime scene it's now. It's nice ancient. <laughs> and I was very nervous as I peeled back this black plastic. And it was not recent, thankfully, but it was the skeleton we were looking for. And underneath that black plastic was a pool of water. And when bone is sitting in that kind of water for a while, oh. it starts to turn spongy and decay. Oh, so, wow. Very bad, very bad practice on the part of that old older company. So I called yeah. over the director and I was like, I think we found him. <laughs> so horrendous weather. And here we are trying to dig out this poor young person and we cleared everything off and we were all supposed to like go home and the conditions weren't safe because it was raining so hard. But all of us were kind of looking at each other like if we leave the skeleton in here any longer, it's going to be destroyed. We have to get yeah. him out now. 
And uh, who, what it was, was in the bottom of this large two meter deep ditch was an adolescent male. And he was face down and his head had been severed, but still present. I think one of his feet was also severed and still present. And I think it was either his left hand was severed, but placed in between his legs then. And he was face down in a ditch. And we were like, what did this poor kid do to, to deserve this? But it was like upsetting and also inspiring because, you know, when you find skeletons of bones and stuff as an archaeologist, you're kind of, you distance yourself from it. You compartmentalize because of course you do. If you dwell too long on the thoughts like this is a person, it can become upsetting. But then sometimes that can swing too far the other way and you're just like, ah, it's whatever. But everybody stayed out in the wet and the dark and the cold. And we were all working as quickly as we could and being as compassionate as possible to try and get this young man out and away. And we did get him out in the end and he wasn't too destroyed or mottled and wrecked, but it was certainly a very poignant and memorable uh, find, I think. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Wow. That's, wow, that's... uh... That's that's a fascinating story. I I I always I always like used to think when I was younger, being like, even recently, like you know, like what what actually goes through archaeologists' mind when they find like a dead body or or like a skeleton mm-hmm. of a person. Like what? So it's it's nice to hear from you the thought process that goes into your heads when yeah. you actually go through digging all of that. Uh, I, I I know I did have a question. So I know you you mentioned, you know, you're digging all the way and everything, right? And and I know that you were diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So want to get yeah. into like how how did that affect, you know, your professional work and then, you know, how did it not better yet, how did it how did you not let it affect your professional work and you know how you pulled through because I just want to inspire the listeners to, you know, let them know that nothing can yeah. stop you. Yeah, I think um, there was definitely a sort of a window why, where I was undiagnosed, but also still working while I was waiting to see someone because it took a very long time to get the appointments to see a neurologist and then like to get blood specific blood works done and see a, a, all these yeah. people, so many. Oh, my goodness. I can't even rheumatologist. That's the word. <laughs> but yeah, like it's a very long process. So I knew like, right, I'm out of college. I'm not doing anything. I need to get working. So it was in that first site, really. And I, I did a good few, actually, before I was properly diagnosed. And for that specific site, I had to get up at 5.30 a.m. in the morning and then catch a train to be in work on time. And the only time during that day was from 5.30 until 6 a.m. that I would not be in horrendous pain. Wow. I had half an hour every day of no pain. That's... Wow. Oh, oh my, it's oh unimaginable to me now, but I do remember like what it's horrible. like. It's just very bone deep, sharp, horrible pain and tiredness. And my joints are sore and I feel very sad and my, you know, my mind is wandering, you know. So there are times where I wondered, am I just, am I going insane? Am I making this up? Am I bringing this on myself somehow? Because, you know, there was no clear answer. There was yeah. no physical signs of this thing. I didn't know what was happening. So I just... It was very hard. And there was a while there while I was on that specific site where I would go up for a bathroom break, which is quite a long walk from the bottom of the site all the way up to the port which is great because you'd be like, oh, I'm going to go for a toilet break. <laughs> yeah, just it's like a, it's like a disappear for like half an hour to 40 minutes. Oh, yeah. Oh, there were so many people who did that all the time. But <laughs> I would go up there and I would just cry in the port I would just cry because I was like, I hate this. Oh, I'm so I, sorry. I'm miserable and it's horrible. And you know, that was really, really hard for me. And true to form in, during the Irish summer, like it was maybe May or May, April, one of those months. And it was lashing rain, absolutely spitting out of the heavens. And we were all in our wet gear, scraping away. And I was kind of just like on my own somewhere on the side. And I was crying quite a bit. I was just like, <laughs> I was, so you know, like not happy at all. And yeah. then all of a sudden watched fly towards me, but a massive bumblebee. I just landed on my bright yellow high-vis coat and it started to rain and I just put my hand over it and gave it shelter from the rain for a little while and that just broke me out of like the sadness and then when the rain stopped I took my hand away and she flew off again and it just made me so happy that little small moment of like you know things are bad but they're not always 
the end of the world. There, yeah. Things can get better. There's still good and light and nice things in the world. And, you know, I was able to derive so much happiness from that small little moment. And, you know, shortly after that, I went to see my own general practitioner, my own doctor. And I said, I can't be doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. I am in horrible pain. Please help. And she's like, OK, I have an idea that you're going to be diagnosed with fibromyalgia. So I'm going to go ahead and prescribe you the medication to manage the pain for fibromyalgia. And I was like, okay. And she did. And interestingly enough, one of the things they prescribe you for fibromyalgia pain is an antidepressant because it has some strange like knock-on effect that helps bring your pain levels down. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So there I was, out of my absolute mind, like the most euphoric I'd ever felt in my life, sit, like sitting down on, on a site, digging a post hole, like I was up to my shoulder and I had to lie down and I was scooping with an old rusty spoon. I was just laughing and I didn't feel pain. And it was lovely. But I was, as they say here, as high as a kite nearly on this antidepressant. And the thing is, there was this one guy in sight. And at this point now, it was very sunny and lovely and warm. Yeah. And he was a bodybuilder, he said, but he had the most ridiculous haircut. And he would wear these bright orange trousers and just put his busy vest on. But he would also have his shirt off at any yeah. Given opportunity, you'd have his shirt. Just give him a chance. His shirts. Oh off. yeah, any chance. At all. Any chance. And I was just lying there across the side from him, and I was looking at him, being like, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing because I thought his haircut was so silly. Oh wow! And from there, you know, I started to really manage so much better. You know, I got different medications, and then a while after that, I got a formal, proper diagnosis. I went in to see a man, and he said to me, "Right, you have fibromyalgia," and I was like, "Can I get that in writing, please?" And he's like, "Here you go." Mm. And it was the happiest day of my life. Yeah. I was overjoyed because I had information. I knew what it was. Yeah. I know fibromyalgia isn't degenerative. It's not going to get worse. And then I knew how to manage it. Yeah. So I had to go to a rehabil rehabilitation center. And the best thing is, is that the rehabilitation center was in a hospice. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. whenever I said, oh, I have to go to the hospice, they were like, you dying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm getting busy living. But yeah. yeah, it was it's a very intensive two week program to start out your medication and to do physiotherapy, diet. And also they were just you were in the room in a ward with like so many other people with fibromyalgia, arthritis and all this. But it felt so, you know, gratifying and I felt so vindicated, I suppose, mm -hmm. that people were like, no, this is real. And what's mm -hmm. happening to you is real. What you're feeling is real and it is horrible and it, it's terrible. The great thing was, is that once I knew that I forgave myself so much and I allowed myself to be unwell. And when I gave myself space to be unwell, that meant I could start to feel better. Yeah. And I found a way of like doing exercise in such a way that like, sure, it hurt now, but if I kept at it, I would be so much better. So the more exercise I do, the better I feel, the less pain I'm in and my mood improves and everything. So archaeology being a very physical job, obviously that lends itself. Yeah. So then I went on to a different site after I was finished up with all this rehabilitation and everything. I went on to a different site and the company was so much nicer. It was a different company and they were so lovely. You know, they were always very supportive and being like, oh, if you need anything, let us know. Or if you do like, could you go do that job? And I absolutely I tore into it. Yeah. I was never as fit in my life and I felt great every day I felt fantastic with it and it was amazing and everyone around was, me was so nice as well being like oh my god are you done doing that already you know yeah whereas in other companies they'd be like you're not working fast enough to try yeah. and stress you into doing yeah. more but yeah like it was very possible once I was equipped with the knowledge of how to cope with fibromyalgia like it wasn't a permanent hurdle it was just something I could step around and continue yeah. on with my life so it, it very much is possible to do physical jobs like that with yeah. a condition like fibromyalgia. Yeah, I know. And like, I feel like one of the biggest things was like, there was a bit of a, you knew what was, you knew that you were going through this, right? And, you know, you knew something was wrong, but for so long, you didn't, no one would give you that validation that was, if you are going through it, that you started doubting yourself, right? So once you came to know it, you were like, finally, I know that, so I can deal with it now, like I can manage it. And then, you know, when we went to your rehab and everything, you know, you got to meet other people who and gave you that feeling that you're not alone. You know, there are other people who went through the same things. You know, I'm sure you guys talked about, you know, things you went 
through at the same time and you know that that sometimes it it feels good just to talk about someone who's gone through the same thing wow yeah absolutely yeah so yeah so i'm sure you're you're you you're all fit and well now because because i've because i've because you you've been telling me how you you know when you joined the new company you literally started digging your way and you're you're perfect now that's awesome oh yeah no it was fantastic yeah the work was great i mean i i don't do it so much anymore i kind of stopped yeah um digging before i went back to do my master's um which was in 2020 so i haven't been on a site since but I know that, like, if I had the time to prepare to go back onto a site, I'd be well able for it. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So so this transition, you know, you it's perfect. Sometimes I don't even have to tell my guests the question because they automatically transition into it. So 2020, you know, the year of the pandemic and everything, right? Oh, so yeah. and you decided to do your master's, right? And so how 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 did it go? Like, because I know masters is, you know, there is a bit of a research involved and everything and you have to be in in there in the labs or anything to do research. So how did it, how did it work during, you know, that time? Yeah, um, so I did. I applied for the masters in 2019 and I thought this is going to be a brilliant year. Go back to college. Yeah, all of us thought around. 2020 was would be a great year. Trust me, me too. Oh, yeah, we were all like 2020. <laughs> yeah, my 2020. Year. <laughs> I've never said that. I've never said that since because I was like, nope. No, I'm not you never know. Myself like that ever you again. never know. Yeah. So with my master's, what I did my master's in was um, classics, as in like classical civilizations, which mm-hmm. is specifically like Greek and Roman. And normally when people do classics, they read Homer and, you know, look at all these literary things. But I being an archaeologist was like, yeah, classics. Sure. (laughs) Archaeology. I was doing archaeology the whole time. But with that, then, because it's technically classes in arts and humanities, I didn't have to go into labs or do anything like that. So I I did the entirety of my master's at home in my pajamas. Wow. (laughs) On my laptop. And I did amazingly. I did so much better in my master's than I did in my undergrad because I was a little bit older. I'd read a lot of books. A little bit <laughs> wiser, a little bit fairer. Yeah, yeah, a little bit <laughs> older, a little bit wiser. And I knew my own body better. You know, I knew yeah. my conditions that I knew how to manage. So my health was fantastic going into this. So I was ready. I was raring to go. And at the start of it, I, I said to myself, if I get uh, a 2 1, which is like sort of like a B plus yeah. in Irish in college Ireland. terms, I yeah. don't know how everyone else does things, but. So if I get a 2-1, I'll be happy. So I did my first assignment, handed it in, and it was an archaeology assignment, because of course it was, and it was about it was about archaeological site reports. And I was like, oh come on. And you're like, I've written, <laughs> I've written a bunch of these, a million of these. So not a big yeah, deal. Yeah, I was at like, all. come on. And obviously I get first class marks. You yeah. know, I get like top marks on this. And I was like, oh, maybe I am capable of doing first class work. Maybe if yeah. I push myself, I can do this thing. So, yeah, the pandemic was atrocious and woeless and nobody could leave their home county, you know, and I was in one place and the college was in another place. And I was like, oh, God, But they sent everyone out a letter then because they had checkpoints like they had the guards or the police. I have a checkpoints in between counties stopping people and turning them oh, away. Wow. But I had a letter from college saying I was the, allowed to. The VIP <laughs> <So>. letter. <laughs> yeah, I had the, the letter being letter. like this person is allowed yeah. to cross the border. Because I would go up every now and then with a suitcase full, like with a suitcase, I'd go yeah. to the library, get out a load of books and bring them back with me then in the suitcase and like work off of them because I had to try and write all my assignments. I had to, you know, do my class readings and I had to write a dissertation. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was actually eye opening how much discipline I had in myself. Um, because I was starting at this point to suspect that I had attention deficit oh. Oh. undiagnosed because that's that's like the, the just the key word of my life, undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, hmm, yeah, there's a reason why I'm struggling so much to pay attention, but I would 
I think I came to the realization that I had gotten myself through so much in my life through pure stress, mm-hmm. absolute anarchy. I was always making myself so stressed out about things to try and accomplish tasks. But that being said, I started the process to get diagnosed with ADHD and it took a very long time to even get a meeting with a psychiatrist. So I did the entire master's undiagnosed uh, and it was a struggle, but I did get that first class master's. I did get that mark and it was amazing. And, you know, uh, the lockdown was starting to lift and everything and the restrictions were lifting and I was able to actually physically go to my graduation. Wow, that's awesome. yeah and see like a few of my classmates actually also graduated a few people were like i can't be doing this this year you know they deferred for a year or semester or something so it was so nice to be able to go up and i brought my parents up as well and all we were oh all of us over the moon Mm. you know and it was absolutely fantastic and at that point then i was like okay i think i will go back even further yeah and i think i have to say like again it was my dad who kind of encouraged me because i have been thinking will i go and do a master's while i was still working and just over dinner one day, he was like, hey, Mary, are you ever going back to college? I was like, oh. <laughs> and I was like, I might. <laughs> I don't know. And he's like, you should. You've got all these brains. You need to be doing something with it. And I was yeah. like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, yeah, like, if you've got the brains, you know, go all the way. Become, become, yeah. that, become the doctor. So, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. So, when you were... when supporting me. Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. He was still supporting me all the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, so I was just saying, I'm like, um, it would, it wasn't probably nice when you went for your graduation to see all these people that you see on the screen in like 3D, just being like, oh my God, this is how you, oh wow, this is how you look? This is how you are? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. that uh, I know like even, even here, like during the pandemic, like what happened was my sister was just getting into university during the pandemic. So her first and second year were like all from home. So when she went into her third year, she's just like, it's so weird because their university experience was just from home, right? So for them, it was like, yeah. oh my God. And when it opened in third year, they're like, oh my God, we're so shy. We don't know what to do and everything. But, you know, they're getting better now. Yeah, so. Yeah. Uh, now, now the next step, I, I did have one question and I'm going to go back for this. And you feel free to, you know, answer with a no comment. But did you ever take something from a dick site and didn't tell anyone about it <laughs> could they ever like a, an artifact or a piece of something yeah yeah you can say uh, no comment you know, sometimes when we find things and they're not labeled properly and we have no context for them they are completely and utterly useless so there may or may not be some bits of stones, or not stones, sorry, there's bits of pottery yeah, just yeah. in my house. Uh, I absolutely 100% have fossils because that's not archaeology. Yeah. Um, you can just keep them. Yeah. <laughs> They're free. <laughs> <laughs> archaeology is just human history. So when you yeah. find a fossil, you're like, oh, neat, yeah. in the pocket. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely have some interesting bits and pieces that just didn't have a context. So they were completely and utterly yeah. useless. Wow. <laughs> Now I can imagine, you know, your and place. Sometimes I didn't tell people that. <laughs> yeah. Now I can imagine like your place. As soon as you enter, there's an entire room. Just just my archaeology display and like stuff all around there. <laughs> yeah. No, they'd only be like the tiniest yeah, little yeah, pieces. Yeah, yeah. That sure. you like you might find on the ground somewhere and be like, which drying rack did this come off? And everyone's <laughs> like, I don't know. It wasn't labeled. Yeah. God's sake. <laughs> I know. So, so now you're... Uh, your PhD. So you 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 started researching into, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, feminism in the workplace, uh, or was it was it? Go ahead, go ahead. If I'm saying something wrong, go ahead. What was you know better yet? What was your PhD research on? What are you researching on? That's uh, a better right question. Right now, I what I'm researching is body modification in the ancient Mediterranean, mm-hmm. which is a very, like, that's a very broad title. title because I'm only, I am only in my first year of the PhD topic, but I know, I already know where I'm taking this. And the reason I chose this topic and how this relates back to being very, like, feminine and female is that a lot of the times the modified bodies that we see or find evidence for are, are female. Mm-hmm. And 
the reason why I kind of chose this topic as well is that my past research was looking at, you know, like motherhood and how we discuss certain topics in archaeology. How is it written about? Why do we think the way we think about these things? Why do we have these biases and why do we make these assumptions? And, you know, it's absolutely mind boggling when you come across some of the things that are written down that people assume, just make assumptions about. They're like, oh, well, you know, the ancient Greeks were like this. So, you know, it's like based on what? Yeah. I think, what was it? There, there was one guy, I think he in 1932 or something, he wrote that, you know, um, the Greek women were so happy with their household tasks that they didn't have time for painful thoughts about their own existence. As in, like, they just didn't have time for self-actualization and they couldn't possibly have been miserable because they didn't have the brain capacity. And that book was first wow. written then, but it was reprinted in 2018. Wow. So, you know, there's still space for this kind of, what this seems to be so obviously nonsense. Yeah. But there's still space and scope for us to just make these assumptions. Yeah. And I think the real reason for that is how we are taught. You know, when, once someone just makes an assumption and states something as absolute fact, and if they teach that to the next row down, they're like, oh, well, yeah, that must be true because my lecturer told me, my yeah. professor told me. And then they teach the next and so on and so forth. It becomes, you know, like central. It becomes like a, a cornerstone of, of how we understand the past. And another, like specifically for body modification, um, about Egyptian mummies. So there are a good few tattooed Egyptian mummies and the only time we will ever find or no evidence of this because we don't unwrap mummies anymore yeah. is if they're already partially unwrapped if like tomb raiders or what have you have gotten at them or there's been an accident but for the majority of them it's female mummies that are tattooed and what was written of them is that uh, they are most certainly women of bad character and most likely they are street walkers but just because they have tattoos and they're women you know like this is yeah. the kind of assumption that is made so you know it just it seems yeah it seems so silly and yeah. like nonsensical but that's what we think of like ancient societies we all we always just assume well you know women were just drudgery left in the house making babies and cooking dinners you know and yeah. that's not always the case and that's not always correct and then with that as well there's also the assumptions of you know, barbarity or um, imbecility, like not being very clever if you have a body modification, if you have yeah. a tattoo, you're a gang member or like a prisoner, a criminal, that kind of thing. Or if you have, um, would you know what I meant if I said cranial modification? So if you shape yeah. your skull, yeah. you know, and like Indiana Jones and they have that big, yeah. huge, yeah. like that kind of thing. Yeah, so, so uh, the people with, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I've, yeah I've, the, the long yeah. heads, the, the that long kind of heads. thing. And that's, that's done by binding a child's head after they're they are born, that kind of a way. But people will look at this and think, oh, how barbaric, like they must have been very stupid or less than human, you know. And a lot of this is coming from that European white male perspective, because uh, some of the evidence we have discussing this, like the ethnographic evidence is when um, the Spanish conquistadors would go over to the Americas and interact with, you know, the... In the Inca, the South American yeah. cultures there, and they practiced or that kind of head shaping, and it was like, oh, it's going against God, it's unnatural, like it, it carries all of these health risks, like you're going to be stupid, you're going to catch this, you're going to do that. But scientifically speaking, that's not the case. It has yeah. no effect. It's not painful. But we make these assumptions yeah. about a person's character, about their intelligence, about their lives based on how they look, and like that's the case today too. Yeah, you know. So I think it's a very important topic to delve into. Like I'm kind of using it as a lens through which to address these nonsensical biases that we just accept as a matter of fact um, within archaeology and by using frameworks from anthropology and sociology, like as much as I can, because life isn't neat and tidy and it doesn't just fit into one box. Like it's messy, it's all over the place. So I'm going to be messy and I'm going to be all over the place. <laughs> yeah. That's how I'm going to talk about it. And that's just how that's just how it's going to be. And it's proving to be very fruitful at the moment. Yeah. That's that's yeah great. No, like, you know, honestly, the way I think of it and, and you know, uh, I had and I might not know which country in Africa it is, but I had read this article online. So there's a country in Africa where 
there's a tribe actually let's say there's a tribe in Africa where women I'm sure you know have rings around their necks right yeah. so and they would always say that the males in the villages forced the women to do it and that's why the women did it and it was painful but on it was debunked saying that the women actually wear that as jewelry like they enjoy doing wearing that and it doesn't hurt them at all and it's part mm-hmm. of their their culture and it's it's the same as like let's say let's say like you know Sikh people wearing turbans or like you know like um some uh Jewish people wearing wearing their tor- like the the hats at the back so it's it's a, yarmulke, it's a part yeah. of the yeah the yarmulke thank you it's part of the culture right so so if and and I believe that whenever these Spanish or English people would go to these different countries they would see something and if you know they would not understand their male ego would come into play and they would just be like oh yeah this is what it is and they would write it in their books or their notebooks and you know that's how it's passed on and you know that's how the assumption yeah. was made and yeah. they also then enforce their own ideas by saying this must stop and stop yeah. these practices then you know and that's how these things these kind of ideas and practices die out then as well yeah um but it's it's quite interesting because we take all of these very old assumptions and just bring them with us to yeah. the 2023 and then we look at evidence from thousands upon thousands of years ago and we're like oh well obviously they were just a bunch of idiots <laughs> like they had no intelligence this doesn't mean anything like they must have been criminals like did they even have that concept in, in their society like you can't just make broad sweeping assumptions yeah. you know i know so it's, it is there's it's a minefield of, of information. Like there's so much to delve into with it, which I'm delighted I'm glad I picked it. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds, it actually sounds freaking amazing. So the, so bottom modifications throughout history, you know, you mentioned a few examples. Uh, I didn't know about tattoos and mummies. Like I didn't know, I didn't know about that. So that's, that's something cool I learned today. Uh, I also wanted to ask what culture or what, you know, uh, country or you know what I would say part of humanity would you say had the most unique type of body modification from what you've learned uh, since you know starting the research um, I suppose what I've been really looking at so far is like the head shaping mm-hmm. so the skulls um, and it is absolutely fascinating like the thought process behind it and the amount of research recently that has gone into it as well. Uh, so I think like that is incredibly unique and it has to be done at such a specific, during such a specific window of your life, you know, obviously it has to be done during infancy. So the person can't consent. They can't decide that for yeah. themselves. So that is definitely something I would, will be bringing up and discussing, of course. Um, but it's not something you could ever hide once it's yeah. done. Like you can't hide that. And later on in your life, if you want to emulate someone else who has it, like you can't just decide, mm. oh, tomorrow I think I'll go get me head shaped, you know? It's, <laughs> yeah, it's not it's possible. Not a thing, I think that yeah. is so, so like permanent and unique and very like because there's so many different ways to bind the skull and shape the skull that there's some thought that perhaps each region had its own signifying head oh, shape, wow. you know, that there was a specific style that like, if you were from Kirokutia, you could look at someone from Paphos and know that's where they were from based oh, on wow. the shape of their skull. Wow. You know, like, uh, so there's a lot of discussion about why they would do this and all that. But um, I think another interesting thing that I read, of course, is um, when we have to correct, you know, a misshapen skull in an infant today in modern medicine, it's called plagiocephaly. That's the technical mm-hmm. term to one sec let me let me let me write it down just give me one sec (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but yeah the uh the treatment for like plagiocephaly in an infant in modern medicine is to like put that helmet on the child Mm -hmm. you know like you you will sometimes see a child wearing a little a little helmet and that helmet stays on their head for 23 hours a day for several months 23 wow. hours a day that is intense wow. and what they found is that often the most discomfort that an infant will feel is from skin abrasions and like you know from having this thing on their head all day and it might cause infections and the treatment might have to be like prolonged or like um 
paused for a little while yeah. while they treat that. So it's like, okay, this is a difficulty they have today. So how we can think about ancient examples of this head shaping is to look at ethnographic sources or like anthropology um, records of living cultures that were observed that practice this. And they wouldn't bind the child's head for that length of time. You know, they would do it for a far shorter period of time and they would put a sort of a salve or a poultice on the baby's head to protect their skin. And it would take far longer. The child wouldn't complain. It wouldn't be in pain. It wouldn't be in discomfort and would still achieve the result of artificially altering the shape of the skull. So it, I suppose it all depends on what do we view as barbaric? Yeah. You know, would would we say that taking a child's head and like flattening the back of it, is that barbaric if the child is okay? Whereas, you know, here's a child wearing a helmet for 23 hours a day in total discomfort because that's our recommended treatment. Yeah. And they're in pain. Like it, it all depends, of course. Um, so it's, it's definitely... There's a lot of considerations there about it and why we make such assumptions about specific body differences. Yeah. And why do we disregard body difference? You know, is it body horror? Is it assumption of like um, inferior intellect? Is it ableism? Yeah. I mean, there's definitely ableism in there yeah, somewhere too, sure. but yeah. There's definitely like an ethical dilemma in, in the mix as well, for sure. Massively, wow. yeah. Wow, wow. I the 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 part when you mentioned that you know different tribes would have different body the uh, cranium techniques modification techniques that you could identify that they were from a different tribe like I didn't know about that at all that that that's that's yeah. wow that's just amazing Definitely. and now, yeah, now it, go ahead go ahead yeah <laughs> no it's just it is very stark when you see the examples yeah. of from the people from one place because you think oh it couldn't be that different but like yeah. You know, one person might have their head going up a bit or like back a bit or squished in or, you know, flattened at the front or something. So like it's very specific and stark methods and visual markers of this. And correct me if I'm wrong, they still tribes. There are some tribes that still practice this today as well, right? Um, I there there very well could be. I think so. Yeah, I'm not super up on it at the moment i know in a lot of places where we have records that they did used to practice it no longer okay. practice this because i think of course you know when westerners or like europeans specifically see something you know they think yeah. is har- harming a child or you know as going against god or barbaric they try to put a stop to it even yeah. if it's not necessarily their place to do that and of course i i'm all on board for if if something is hurting somebody i'm i'm not in support yeah, yeah. of that at all like culturally like of course i think culture is very important cultural practices are important but if it's doing actual proper harm to somebody like at that point no the culture needs to change i i think but yeah yeah you have it's a fine line like i said life is messy and yeah. i can't there's no black and white to these things it is very ethically kind of gray but i do believe there there could still be places that would practice this yeah oh, wow okay yeah i mean at the end of the day like i'm i'm like super that's why i have these conversations with my guests because like there's so many things i didn't know and i'm like more excited to learn more about it on my own as well because it's it's actually like very very like um, an amazing and creative thing that that your research is doing and you know it's gonna it's definitely gonna help the society in a long way and people don't think about the work that you know you folks do sometimes like for them, it's all what's happening in politics, what's happening in a sports game and all of that. But people don't realize the amount of effort, you know, and research that goes behind even the smallest thing, you know, and, you know, body modification, such a niche, but such a such a interesting and such a fascinating thing to think about. So, you know, like I'm, I'm very happy for you that you're doing this. Now, I, I also read that you're, you know, in the future, you know, you're planning to create like a database of these things where where you know you could you could look up on it and read up on it so you know if you want to talk about that a little yeah. bit uh yeah the, the database thing like it's still a few years off um but obviously my main goal is once i have all of this research done compiled turned into a dissertation what have you i want to make it available you yeah. know i want to make it open access because 
once I have my work done, someone else can take that or take something from that and do something even greater or continue it on or advance some some other area um, because that's how I feel it should be. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, because I'm looking at so many different examples and what have you, I'm trying to keep track of all of my bits and pieces. You know, where did I see this bit of information? What is this pertaining to? What's it connected to? I think it would be good to have some sort of um, resource that it can you can easily kind of try and sort through it. So I'm, I'm working on trying to figure out like, what programs or softwares can be used? How would I share this information? So that's still under under construction, mm. shall we say, to like try and figure that much of it out. But I think it, it is very important for me that if I do something that I feel is worthwhile, that it is useful. Um, because I'm not I'm not doing this to make money. There's yeah. no money in this. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm doing this because I I feel like even this ancient reflection on our, our culture. Is important to our modern day culture as well because it explores like has humanity changed that much and why do we assume these things like is there not this basis or precedence in our ancient history and how can it improve culture going forth so if someone else can take some of the research i've done and go a completely different direction with it that'll be just the cherry on top that would be fantastic yeah yeah you know no the f and you know that's how i know you're a good samaritan because because you know, you want to put the work in and then you, you, you're, you're, you're more than willing to have someone else, you know, take it upon and take the research further. You know, that, that actually shows like the amount of, you know, it's not just you're here for the work, but you're here for the community and you're here for the whole world at the same time. So that's, that's, that's actually amazing. Uh, you know, so it, it's been like a great, great episode. You know, we discovered so much about archaeology, about you, you know, the hardships you went through, you know, and, you know, arguably this is going to be our longest episode. So, so, and I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't stop you because it was amazing. Is there anything, you know, an advice or anything you want to give to our viewers or anything you want to, you want to inspire them? This is, this is your chance. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes in life, things don't always go the way you plan. And there's no like set age limit to do something, you know, because a lot of the other people that are doing PhDs in, in the classics department at the moment are people who would have been a year below me in my undergrad. And they're like at the end of their PhD journey. And sometimes I think like, oh God, like how, did I waste all those years like in between, like I'm behind schedule, but I'm not on anyone else's schedule. I'm on my own schedule and I think I've accomplished so much in my life that it isn't necessarily all like here's a degree here's another degree like it's not always about going to college getting a job you know I took a lot of time for self-exploration and to build my relationships with my friends with my family and that is so worthwhile and important as well and yeah here I am at 28 in my first year my PhD and I feel very proud of myself. I've accomplished a lot and I've come so far and there is no such thing as wasted time. You know, I spent hours playing video games and like reading books and no matter where you learn something from, you've still learned it. You know, I learned about Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven from The Simpsons. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter yeah. when you learn something, if it sparks an interest in you, that's fantastic. The same with Stargate SG-1, like I mentioned yeah. at the start, like it's science fiction, it's a bit campy and kooky but it started the ball rolling for me on this lifelong ambition just to be like I want to be like Dr. Jackson I want to explore all these things you know and yeah there was definitely a time where I was never going to achieve this dream where I never thought oh I'm never going to do a PhD I'm never going back to college it's not for me I'm not who they're looking for well I be I made a space for myself I made myself who they're looking for I yeah. said no you want to be looking for this. You're not looking for it right now. Well, you should be. Yeah. You know, I sure. carved a space for myself and it's it's not impossible. It, it's doable. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. The, the, that's how you know you're a good, good, you know, storyteller because you bought it back from the start of the episode to the end. Amazing. <laughs> Anything that's coming on the horizon for you, you know, where where if people want to get in touch with you, you know, let them know where they can get a hold of you, you know, talk to you, let them know. Uh, yeah, so uh, I suppose my Facebook, because I know I'm like, like an owl one, but uh, for some reason, a lot of the 
archaeologist and classic stuff is on Facebook. So I do have a Facebook page. If you need me to send you the link, I will. Uh, I also have an Instagram, which is just Amy of the Barrow. Just because I also do a bit of crafting, you know, I make nice. things, uh, yeah. which is kind of nice. But sometimes I like post a picture from the library or something. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, like I've done a few conferences, done a few more. Now I'm doing podcasts because that's the way to disseminate yeah. knowledge because conferences cost money. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure, Dave. Thank you for having awesome. me. No, no, thank you so much. And that's it, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, we, you know, we want to thank Amy for taking this time on a Sunday afternoon to join with us and, you know, explore all things archaeology, you know, dig and dive in and get actually get to the nitty gritty of it. So thank you. And, you know, thank you for listening. Join me next week with another exciting guest. And until then, stay curious.